Welcome to GodPod. This is a podcast from St Paul's Theological Centre, based in St Melitus College, which is a community of people studying and teaching Christian theology here in the UK and around the world. Graham Tomlin, Mike Lloyd, and the occasional guest join me, Jane Williams, in discussing God, life, theology, in fact, just about anything. Hello and welcome to another episode of GodPod. And uh, it's me, as usual, Graham Tomlin, and we also have Jane with us today. Hello. Always wonderful to have Jane. We missed Jane last time round. It was just Mike and me wittering away. I don't like to think about it, really. No, oh, no it wasn't quite the same, Jane. <laughs> we sort of managed somehow, but anyway. Especially as I gather you advertised your own books, but not mine. Yeah, shameless self-publicity yeah. <laughs> it was. And we didn't mention yours, which was very silly of us, wasn't it? Anyway, actually, it's a good point. Yeah, what what book should we should we read from you, Jane? Come on. Um, well, what have you been writing? By the latest one I've written is a book called "The Merciful Humility of God." Oh, what a title! And it's actually a Lent book. It's aimed uh, at people who want to study something in um, in a bit more depth during Lent. But I hope it will transfer to other seasons of the, the church. The Merciful yeah. Humility of God. Mm. Good title, isn't it? It's a great title. It's I didn't invent title. that title, so I can say it's a great yeah, title. Yeah, I'm lousy at titles. I really wish I could come up with really good titles, but mm. I must get you to do my next title. Anyway, it's great to have Jane with us on Godpot, as always. Um, and we have a guest today. We don't have Mike, um, but we do have a guest who is um, Nick Drake. Hello. Nick, it's great to have you with us. Yeah, and, good to um, be here. Uh, Nick is one of our former students at St. Melitus College, uh, and uh, he trained at the college, uh, got ordained. Uh, is now working in a church in Birmingham. Gastreet Church. Gastreet yeah. Church, exactly. Some some of you may have heard of. Um, but has been doing a PhD over the last, um, how many years now? Th- three or four. Three or four. Yeah, I think it was four to finish That's it. pretty good, four yeah. to finish it, exactly. And um, so we were um, intrigued by the kind of work that Nick has been doing and thought it'd be good to chat over some of the um, stuff that you've been um, writing about. And Nick, you've been, you've been looking at... Um, the theology of worship, is that right? That's right, yeah. Uh, in particular, bringing in dialogue Pentecostal charismatic worship um, with its emphasis on intimacy and the dynamic kind of presence of God through the Spirit with Calvin's notion of union with Christ and hmm. participation, how we participate in God. So I saw a similarity between the two, saw that no one had really brought these two together. Yeah. That was the that was the attempt <laughs> that I made, yeah. yeah. So. And you are a, a worship leader by trade and background. You've led a lot of, lot of worship in, in your past, both before and since getting ordained. Yeah, I mean, I grew up just fascinated by, I mean, in worships where I first kind of came to faith, realised, you know, Jesus was alive. He wasn't just a historical figure, mm. um, experienced the presence of him in the room, so to speak, through worship mm. uh, with others. So... Yeah, right from probably 15 years old or something, that was my passion, was how can I help other people mm. encounter him through worship? And yep. uh, that's been my journey through studying theology, but in practice being more on the music, worship leading kind of okay. side, yeah. yeah. So. And that's a combination you don't often get, do you? And people, you know, people who are practitioners in leading sung worship in the charismatic tradition mm-hmm. and um, thinking theologically about it as well. Mm. What, what got you thinking about it rather than just doing it as it were. Yeah, I, I think that thing, you know, there's this story about uh, the composer Schumann that he, when he'd written one of his amazing 
pieces, all his friends had gathered around and said, you know, uh, how did you write that? Can you put it into words how you wrote that? And instead of answering them in words, he just looked at the piano and just played it all again. Mm-hmm. And I think there is that, there's, there is that danger in, um, certainly in more Pentecostal charismatic musician worship leaders that we haven't always been great at putting into words our praxis. Mm. And so that kind of reflective practitioner thing is, I guess, the piece that I want to try and step into mm. and try and combine the theology and the thinking, being able to articulate the praxis. Like, even just why do we sing? Because mm. that's one of the questions on our congregation's mm. lips. You know, why are we singing for 20 minutes in a mm. row? Or, mm. um, and those kind of questions that are quite simple, but they're not often answered well or in words. Yep. <laughs> you yep. know, they just, um, you have to experience more until we'll just keep playing. Sure. You know, so yeah. that's that's what I want to step into. Yeah, I'd I'd love to pick up this idea of intimacy in worship, mm. um, because obviously um, different kinds of personalities and different kinds of church traditions mm. um, s- would express that intimacy really differently. Sure. Um, uh, so I, I was very much struck when giving a lecture a few years ago and talk, talking about the Eucharist, the Holy Communion, mm. um, and. Uh, why some churches uh, are are not um, making that any longer their main act mm. of worship, and one of um, the students said, "Well, because it's not really doesn't allow a real intimacy right. with God." And I thought, yeah. "Well, how how can that be when we're talking about eating the body and blood of Christ? How can that not be yeah. intimate?" Um, what what's what compare and contrast those two sort of forms of intimacy? That yeah. real um, expectation of meeting with the Spirit in a very deep and mm experiential way and then there's the the, what you might call the more traditional yeah um well partly it's about meaning isn't it and meaning making and 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 what does you know what when we sing what do we think the experience is that we're having and and what does it mean and when we take communion is it merely remembrance all those historic questions or is it encounter and that that's interesting because that's why i really loved exploring calvin because he emphasizes the spirit as the mediator, the agency of the intimacy, in a sense, of the encounter moment. Um, so he very much does have a, a theology of presence in mm. some way, um, and certainly more akin in its in the in the in the in the way of kind of a real presence, a true presence, maybe more accurate description mm. for him, of Jesus mm. in the Eucharist, mm. which is akin to what really, if you were to put into words, what charismatic Pentecostals thinks happening in singing that there is a true presence of Christ that you encounter by the same spirit. So that's what fascinates me, is actually how can we learn from each other these different traditions? And that's what's so exciting about the Anglican context as well, if I may say, that you can you have both in one place, in a sense. You can have that, um, that dialogue between the different locations, if you want to talk of that, of intimacy within mm-hmm. our gathered worship and how you, how you learn from one another. Calvin's theology of the Spirit is 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 closely t- allied to his sacramental theology, isn't it? Because mm-hmm. for him, you know, whereas Zwingli, for example, you know, somewhere has a sort of purely re- remembrance type approach to um, the Holy Communion. There's no mm-hmm. real sense of presence of Christ mm-hmm. or the presence of the Spirit in in communion. It's a remembering what had happened in the past. It's a kind of bonding mm-hmm. together of the community. You know, Luther has a very sort of physical presence mm-hmm. of Christ, but for, for for Calvin, it's very much you know Christ is present, but he's mm. present by the Spirit. Yeah, and you know we and our and our hearts are lifted to the presence of Christ, which yeah. is in heaven. The sort of some corda, you lift up your yeah. hearts. That's the kind of key moment. Yeah, in Calvin's view of the 
sacrament. So he has this 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 sort of you know sort of sacramental and pneumatological um, kind of view of um, of, um, of 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 intimacy. You know, so for him, yeah. the sacrament is important, not in a, not in the physical eating of no. Christ's body and blood, as Luther or maybe the Roman Catholics would have it, but in that sort of feeding on Christ in mm. the spirit. Thing. Is that what you see going on in charismatic worship as well? Yeah, and, and, well, what, and what, just on Calvin, what's interesting is he, he I mean, obviously, he's a genius. That's what's the yes. first to say. You know, he's a genius, and especially, you know, what I, I've learned is that not many people, certainly in the UK, it's not a big, you know, big thing. Not many people are reading him enough, is what I'd mm. say. In the UK, because yep. in America, it's a big divisive thing. Yeah. But straight away, I'd say, you know, if anyone's listening, you know, read a chapter a day or something, you know, mm. just begin, have a look at it. The institutes. Yeah. Yep. yeah. Um, because I wish someone had told me, you know, no one told me in my BA to read him, really. I'm so sorry, Nick. No one I told me apologize. in my MA. You know, <laughs> I told, I told you like, to read it. Come on. Yeah, well, that was much later. You know, not my original <laughs> BA, late, may I say so. Yeah, 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 okay. Durham. There you go. Um, yeah. So, you know, there's so much rich stuff there. But but he, so he's a genius, but it does start, he does start reaching the limit, it feels, when he starts talking about actually this combination of real or true presence that you are ingesting in somehow in communion but it's and yet it's the agency of the spirit and it feels like even at that point how actually because he's it is crucial to him the humanity ongoing humanity of the risen christ because there's this the beautiful exchange yeah so there is this kind of point where okay what's this actually mean in church praxis um where it kind of starts you know falling apart not falling apart but he leaves a gap you know okay. i think um, Jane, i mean on. one of the things that is important to to calvin um uh, is that um there there are there are physical elements to this intimacy yeah. Yeah. so we do need the bread and the wine mm. and uh, we do need the water of baptism yeah. uh, and it's in, in, again differently from zwingli where they're not just mm. symbols that just happen to help us remember sure. um they uh, recognize that we are physical beings mm. is tell me about how that operates in uh in your in yeah. charismatic worship. well and uh, you know matter matters yeah so there is something about the bread and the, the redness of the wine that relate in some way to our remembering to our intimacy with jesus body and blood through those um material items um so but I guess what Pentecostal charismatic worship brings in its emphasis on the spirit is this kind of a, a real strong pneumatological dimension to presence and the agency of presence that uh, Pentecostal charismatics don't want to let go of. You know, that, that's right at the heart of how it all happens. Now, the criticism of Pentecostal charismatic can often be, well, it's, is it just a Gnostic kind of escapist mm experience thing i.e. you don't need matter mm. or the world you just got to escape it for this experience and that's where I found like Calvin's understanding of union with Christ and the sacramental tradition he brings really um, acts as a great foundation and a kind of corrective to that kind of challenge to Pentecostal charismatic so it's almost like a missing soteriology in some way mm. to bring in what would otherwise just be this kind of n- pursuit of pneumatological experience? Mm. Mm. Does that make sense? And, uh, I, I, yeah. Yes, what it does. Questions going, yeah. going on in my, in my mind. One of them, I suppose, is how significant is the community to this? Because uh, mm. the communal nature of song worship—that you do it together, not just on your own. Because it strikes me that Christ's 
we're given to understand that he makes himself present in a number of ways. He yeah. makes himself present to us in bread and wine. You know, he, he is present to us in the word of scripture and the word of preaching. Yeah. Um, and he's also present in the community where two or three are gathered together. Yeah. I am in the midst of you. And uh, I suppose when I've thought of charismatic song worship, um, that communal nature of it, that this is the community gathered together, uttering praise to God, yeah. that's almost almost the most central part of it. It's the yeah. communal nature of it, because Christ has committed himself to being present in the community as they gather in the name of Christ, mm. just as he's committed himself to bread and wine and to the water of baptism and mm. to the word of preaching and so on. And therefore, there's something about that, that co- the community gathered together in the name of Christ, offering heartfelt praise, that that's the kind of almost sacramental moment. And it is physical, isn't it? I mean, you can't yeah. sing without involving your whole... Exactly. You've got to that's breathe, right. you've, yeah. got to, uh, you've got to be aware that there are different voices, that some people sing well, some people... So there yeah. is a, a real um, acknowledgement of physicality. Yeah. In and, your... and in the charismatic Pentecostal tradition, there's the raising of hands, there's yeah. the sort of the sometimes kneeling down, falling, the, the use of the body in in worship in a way that some yeah. traditions don't always have. There is a physicality about that. Yeah. Do you think that's significant? Definitely. And on the corporate dimension, I mean, that, you know, uh, Wimber, John Wimber, who was, you know, key person in the vineyard movement and a key, key influence we haven't got time to go into, but on the history of the development of the last 30 years of charismatic worship within UK Anglicanism, which has been a huge influence. Um, You know, he talked of everyone gets to play. Now, he meant um, in spiritual gifts, but he also meant this participation of the body. You know, the Mm. congregation is the choir Mm. is another phrase. Mm. You know, this kind of um, democratization of worship away from kind of an elite, you know, giving it back to the people was his original mm. intent for mm. contemporary worship. And I think, so I think he had that instinctual, this this body idea is so crucial and mm. it should never be this individualistic escapist mm. thing. Mm. Mm. Now, what's interesting is, are we losing that? again a bit you know that that's one analysis i think because i think we now with globalization we've been so influenced by a a broader pentecostalism capital p so that kind of charismatic wimber everyone gets to play it's quite a democratic participation the body matters i I actually feel we're in slight danger going back to kind of like the stage and and a kind of a small group that still mediates something for you do you see what i mean Rather than the band, the worship leader, yeah, yeah, yeah. And how how music, how you use music to get underneath people to to lift them up and to lift their hearts, which is Calvin's thing, and that ascension motif that's so important as we unite with the risen Christ. Like music is God's gift to enable that ascension motif and union with Christ in some way. I think. Can I ask you a slightly different kind of question again? sort of comparing and contrasting um i mean this idea that what orthodoxy means is right worship Mm, mm. uh, and therefore uh one of the things that um uh, that is enabled by uh, a fairly set liturgical pattern Mm. is that everybody tells that story it is connected to jesus so Mm. on at the eucharist you say on the night before he died you tell a bit of the story Mm. um and everybody uh, around the world who shares that is telling that 
bit of the story week after week, day after day, day. Mm. Uh, and that sort of forms then our minds, our hearts, our practice around that central act of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, uh, enabling through the Spirit our participation in that. Mm. How does that work? <laughs> in, I mean, how, how do you um, sort of ensure that you're telling that story and that worship stays connected? Yes, so that's the question, of, I think, of reliability that is a genuine question for free Pentecostal charismatic worship, is how do you ensure it, it, it as a form, it's not so reliable, essentially, to carry what your, you know, the historical creed or foundation... Which is not to say that people can't ignore it, even however much it is there. Right, <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. you know, so, so exactly. So, and that's where I think the, the Anglican context or any context where you can um, have different traditions in one, you know, there's room for a Pentecostal charismatic expression of contemporary worship within a liturgical framework with a Eucharist at the centre. Mm. That ensures this kind of reliable mm. narrative that is so crucial to facilitating the encounter. Isn't it? You know, you know, the, the the presence of the the word of God telling the story gives the meaning to the experience, names the experience that and otherwise who, is who just, it is you're encountering. Right, yes. right. Father, Son, <laughs> Holy Spirit names yeah. it as a Christian yeah. experience. Yeah. That's the difference between hopefully the a similar feeling at a secular concert. That's the big difference, mm. isn't it? Mm. And that's what, where it becomes quite important to see the whole of the act of the coming together of the community as worship. Right. You often get sometimes in kind of charismatic settings, you know, the service has been going on for 20 minutes, and then someone says, now we're going to have a time of worship yeah. for 20 minutes, which means the sung bit. Yeah. But I think what you're saying is actually saying, yes, that has a crucial part in it, but actually as a part of something much bigger, which includes the reading of scripture, it means the prayers, it means the, 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 the Holy Communion, mm. The welcome, the farewell, you know, the blessing. Right. That's it's a, it's a kind of corrective to that sense that right. worship is just the bit right. where we sing. Uh, that's a part of, of of a whole act of worship, which includes the telling of the story, the Eucharistic prayers, the, the other stuff that goes on, mm. um, and it takes its role within that broader context rather than the feeling that's that's the real bit and the yeah. rest of it is sort of fluff, you know. Yeah, yeah. And that's really my passion and, and the heart behind the PhD I've done is how do you get down to that deeper river that unites us, which is essentially not questions of the nature of worship, questions of the nature of God. Mm -hmm. That he's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. How does he want us to participate in his life? How has he set up the divine human relationship? Mm -hmm. And actually, when you get to that place, you start agreeing. Mm -hmm. um, beside, you know, whatever the forms are on the surface of our worship, there's this space theologically, I think, where there's an agreement of Trinitarian structured experience you know how we participate in his life uh, James K. Smith um, says you know if you go down deep enough you hit a Catholic water table by which he <laughs> means essentially mm. Christian you yeah. know and deep and historic and because mm. there's this temptation of Pentecostal charismatic well that's a new thing that's the yeah. 20th century explosion yeah. but actually he argues and I, I agree you know it is it's a Christian thing mm. it's mm. just a rediscovery perhaps, mm. of um, a pneumatological emphasis that perhaps we've, mm. we've missed a bit in our sacramental mm. kind of history. And obviously you write worship songs as well as lead Dabble, them. Dabble, yeah. So um, <laughs> has it, what's it done to, to that, um, doing this PhD, going into this in, in great depth? Can you see it impacting the way you write? Yeah, I mean, it, it, once you start trying to put theology into art, 
it, that, I mean, that's a whole other discussion, it isn't is, it? It is, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, because you can't put footnotes on song lyrics. No, no. So straight away, that's, that's a problem. So I think, I mean, that's, that would be a really interesting discussion, but because a big criticism of Pentecostal charismatic songs is the lyrics often. They're not theological, weighty enough, etc. Or they've said this, but they haven't said this. Mm. But I think often we're judging them on the wrong mm. categories. Mm. Um, and no traditional hymn says everything. No, so it's, it's although a, they can try to, can't they? And then they're not <laughs> usually the best ones. No. Yeah. It strikes me that they, there's different genres, even within the genre of Pentecostal charismatic worship. Sure. There are songs that do tell the story yeah. in a very kind of rich yeah. way. There are, there are some that are simply a vehicle of um, personal intimacy, as old songs have done. You know, the old song, you know, turn your eyes upon Jesus, right. look full mm. at his wonderful face. It's not a terribly rich theological song, but sure. actually it enables a sense of of um, closeness of of, yeah. of worship. Yeah. Um, in that sense, that uh, which has always been the case. You know, you look at some of the old Puritan writers, Samuel yeah. Rutherford and others. Extraordinary language of of almost sort of physical intimacy with with, yeah. with, with Christ. And yeah. You look at some of the you know the Greek fathers. Yeah. You know the the the, the, the very emotional. You know, Teresa of Avila. You know the yeah. the, the kind of. Um, sense of experience of, of the presence of, of, of Christ in a very powerful, almost erotic way. Mm. That's always been a part of the Christian tradition, and this is sure. one expression of it. Um, I mean, one area I'm quite interested in asking you about is music, mm. because clearly in charismatic Pentecostal worship, you have you know, a block of songs together. It's yeah. music which sort of flows together, and I suppose music becomes quite an important thing within that. And um, I guess my question is, what what is the theological significance of music? We kind of know something about the theological significance of bread and wine and water yeah. of baptism and the Christian community and the word of preaching and so on. But but, but music doesn't get a lot of mention in the New Testament. Um, you Small might say question for you there, Nick. Yeah, another, another, so what, what <laughs> another theological significance of music. <laughs> or is it just a vehicle that you take it or leave it? Uh, I think it's a gift from God. Uh, to facilitate our response to him. I mean, all, all through scripture, when you start looking, because you, you know, yeah, ostensibly it's, there's not much there, but when you start looking, you know, Moses and Miriam after the Red Sea burst out, lead the people in a song, you know, day of the temple period, full of songs, Psalms, you know, book of songs, yeah. right through to Revelation 4 and 5, John sees heaven open. There's this musical response in some way, this song, you know. I think there's that little moment that strikes me, you know, when it says just before Jesus and the disciples go from the upper room down to Gethsemane. Right. They sang a hymn. Right, yeah. I was wondering what that hymn was. Yes, you know, yes. Yeah. Just imagining Jesus and the disciples singing in the upper room. Anyway, yeah. sorry, yeah, yeah. Paul and Silas in prison, you yeah. know, they don't pray, they sing, mm. and the earthquake comes. So, um, I mean, many other examples. So music is is intrinsically tied into human response seemingly to God's salvation, like whether that's the freedom from slavery motif or in Egypt, Moses and Miriam. You know, it, it, it's right there, something to do with being fully alive, fully human. Um, and I think therefore it's, it, it, the best way to see it is God's gift to enable our response and to enable this kind of um, participation in his life. Um, but obviously the complication is the church history, where there's kind of been this arm's length at times approach. It goes back to Plato and Augustine picked that up. So even Calvin, you know, there's this nervousness about the power, the intrinsic power of music. Mm. Um, not submitted, though, I would add, to the Lordship of Christ, you mm. see. That's the mm. thing. So I think when music is returned to its maker and source, then it is the gift it's allowed to function as the gift it's supposed to be. Mm. 
but without him there's this danger of it moving us beyond our reason that was you know augustine and and then calvin's nervousness it's interesting that there's um, been a lot of rediscovery uh, recently in, in, in not particularly uh, faith circles of how good for you it is to sing. Right. Um, and particularly to sing together um, uh, and how transformative in all, kind of ways, or all kinds of ways that is. So you can sort of see um, uh, that, that it might be something we as Christians need to rediscover and make a strong theology of. That, yeah. Um, uh, mm. As prayer is good for you, it's yeah. good for your heart. Mm beat is good for your blood pressure and yeah. that's not accidental yeah. actually yeah. and again one of the just to say one of the challenges i've realized through the research is that uh lack of dialogue between disciplines yeah. often so the musicologist versus the theologian you know, don't often come together the worship practitioner the academic theologian you know there's so many places we need to come together more and step into each other's worlds because there's there's fruit to be had there mm. in the conversation mm. there's, a, there's a question that's come in from one of our um Godpod listeners called Ali Campbell, um, who is a youth and children's ministry consultant, and and, and um, the question is is this that uh, there's um, it's really about um, children's ministry, family ministry, intergenerational ministry, and uh, notice that we haven't really talked about that much in all our Godpods, so but we are now. So thank you, Ali, for this. So Ali is they're saying. Um, uh, in terms of evangelism, mission and growth, most people come to faith by the time they're 18 and so on, 90% of the Anglican adults in were in church as children today. So that's a really important area. Now, Nick, I know you and your wife Becky have written some, some you know, some worship songs for intergenerational yeah. worship, which have become really widely known around the church. Mm-hmm. And um, what are your thoughts on that and particularly on um, joining together intergenerationally and worshipping across the generations? Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think that's particularly significant? And um, wh- Why did you get into writing those kind of songs? Yeah, I think it's massively significant. And I think um, it's a real challenge. So, so that's the first thing to say, you know. And, and often, from from my experience, church leaders often give up on it, unfortunately, because it is such a hard challenge. And often, you know, we could feel ill-equipped. Well, how do... How do I be a Saturday morning TV presenter? You know, mm-hmm. you know that's not what I signed up for at theology <laughs> college or whatever it is. You know, Blue Peter. Right, and um, and again, I think I think that's a misunderstanding of what the task is. You know, once you start seeing it as the task is just the same as if it was just a room full of adults you feel more comfortable with, mm-hmm. which is to help people hear the story of God, help them encounter God, help them be formed by and shaped by the Spirit to be. Uh, sent out you know it's the same task it's not you've got to be a crazy entertainer Um, Mm -hmm. and so then the question is okay well now children are in the room with us what does that look like so it may be just the way you frame words you say you frame them slightly differently more more like you would on an alpha course more for a a non-christian just simpler language around it you know but it's it's more understandable more enterable into by the children Mm -hmm. Uh, so I think it's massively significant because I think there's a tremendous power released in the unity across generational divides mm. that the church should be on the front foot of mm. and isn't always. Mm. Um, do you, you see know, that as one of the main ways we can, as a passing on faith from generation to generation, which right. is something the church has struggled with in recent right. times. You know, Is that one of the main ways we do that, through that kind of... Yeah, and allowing children... Together? allowing children to participate in and see uh, prayer at work, see how other adults, not just their parents, but the wider family of God, mm. uh, journey in faith through ups and downs, mm. rather than if they're 
purely separated off for mm. age-related you know activities and teaching they we're not learning from one another you know they're not participating in in, in, in our worship and prayer lives we're not perhaps uh, uh, enjoying the joy that they release the freedom they have isn't being allowed to challenge us mm. their natural freedom mm. um, and after all you know the, Jesus commended faith like a child mm. always wanted them to come to him um, so yeah I, I think it's massively important yep. and the temptation always if there are children there is is to to direct it to the children uh, and so this intergenerational thing is not it, it, you, you sort of feel you can't somehow do theology, do worship that is genuinely engaging at all those different levels of, of, of development that you've got there. Do you think you can? Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think it's definitely hard. Mm. You know, in, in the marketing world, you know, you get your audience as narrow as possible for a successful result. And that's what we can't do yeah. in intergenerational. You're doing the opposite. Mm. But that's where, again, we're not relying on our own strength and skills there is someone else in the room there's the holy spirit there uniting us to christ father's joy you know it's his family mm. the adoption theology is i think really significant in all this and so you know again that danger of uh, this is all on me i'm at the front and maybe i've just got a day and it's all on me and i've got to create <laughs> this thing no and it's also okay if if some people aren't getting it you know whatever that's okay because we're called to honor one another and, and you know and, and sometimes it's not going to be our cup of tea um in fact it's never i don't like tea myself but um, <laughs> um so coffee, man. coffee today yeah so yeah. very grateful for this coffee um so uh i can't remember the question distracted but yes mm-hmm. <laughs> about whether you, it really can be worship that in, that involves everybody that draws everybody in. i truly think it can mm-hmm. yes i mean <clears throat> you're always going to have as i said people who dial out mm. um Related to that, I guess one question that's often asked related to charismatic and Pentecostal worship, which emphasises so much the sense of emotion and uh, you know emotional engagement with worship, um, uh, and you know you hear sort of language, oh, it was a great time of worship, meaning I, I, I felt something. Um, what happens when you don't feel something? Um, when you're in place of worship whatever style it is unless you don't feel anything how, how important is the feeling in that and how would you describe what's going on theologically at that point if actually encounter and experience is a crucial part of charismatic pentecostal worship what happens when that isn't present for whatever reason mm. or not felt it, to be present. Yeah. yeah is it still worship is it still as valuable as the other is the kind jane what do you think about that <laughs> <laughs> um i mean obviously Again, traditionally, that is part of the point of liturgy right? Uh, and patterns of prayer that are handed down generation to generation, that you know you've got that structure that holds right. you. You can step into a space which has been prayed in, even if you're not feeling like praying at the moment. Um, uh, but I, I think um, that if, if the sung worship is part of your faithful liturgy, then you step into it in the same way, don't you? You say, around me, there are people who are showing me that they're encountering God. We are in a place of encounter. God is there, um, it, not dependent on my feelings. Uh, and you you join in faithfully, as you would with any other kind of worship, uh, and, uh, and know that uh, God is there and honoring that faithfulness. Um, so I can't see in that sense 
that is necessarily different from any other kind of theology, except that I think we might need to give people permission more to be able to say that. Mm. It's okay, even in the charismatic and Pentecostal church, not to feel something yeah. <laughs> sometimes. Yeah. Certainly, and I, and I think the danger is where we focus or pursue the feeling yep. and, and say so that is the key to authentic worship you know well uh, yes that was good worship because i felt x mm. you know and mm. it wasn't good worship because i didn't feel anything then obviously mm. that's that's not a good place to be we have to reframe um emotional experience in this wider narrative of union with christ by the spirit is mm. is what is happening participating in the divine life is going to be explosive mm. it's going to be it's a big deal mm. it, you know if god exists and if he's big mm. which he is putting it in simple language when divine and human come together, when we participate mm. in his life, that's an holistic, yep. massive thing. Mm. And so emotions, when they do come, are part of this bigger story mm. that's happening in us. Mm. Um, that it's not just like a, a brush of the presence of God, mm. but it's, um, you know, it's all the way down. It's, it's, it's mm. encounters, that mm. beautiful exchange. It's, it's, it's a deeper, deeper mm. thing. But therefore, it is going to be emotional at times, mm. and that's okay. Yeah, I mean, I remember writing a, a little book, The Prodigal Spirit, a number of years ago, just pondering these questions, and struck me in writing that that yes, you know, if what we say about worship and prayer is real, that you know, in, that in Christ, in in the Spirit, God is drawing us into the heart of the love of God between the Father and the Son. If that's what's happening, then it's not surprising if you feel something from mm. time to time. Yeah. That's in a powerfully emotional experience it's not always going to be no. that way and um and, and i think my, my own experience of it you know when and you know, obviously as a bishop i engage in all kinds of different styles of worship but when i do engage with charismatic pentecostal s styles i often find you know when you, you start off you think oh here we go again you know a few worship songs but actually the, the more you give yourself to it like any form of worship actually you, um god meets you yeah mm. um in ways you don't expect yeah and uh and that sort of act of the will of giving yourself to worship, even when you don't feel like it, actually is an important part of, the, and sometimes yeah. that is the heart of worship, is giving yourself again to God, opening your, your heart yeah. to him, whatever you end up feeling or not. And I, it's, it's quite comforting that there do seem to be some, we're given some gospel pictures of Jesus not feeling mm. the presence mm. of the Father. Yeah, Gethsemane. Um, Gethsemane is, is the obvious one, but also yeah. the temptation in the wilderness. Yeah where he, he, he is faithful to scripture, he's faithful mm. to the mm. knowledge that God is there, the Father is there, um, whatever, the, mm. whatever the feelings. And I think that is just part of Christian discipleship, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. Um, the expectation that we will uh, encounter God, but the, the willingness for that mm. encounter to come mm. in the forms in which That's right. <laughs> God and, gives it to and us. And that ultimately worship is about us worshiping God, yeah. not for us to get something yes. back, and that—that's so basic, but often forgotten. So countercultural, <laughs> right? Yes. Yeah, you know, but that's yeah. that's yeah. that's it. Nate, thank you so much for coming to be part Pleasure. of this God Pod. It's been a really fascinating discussion. Really interesting. And um, so, well, for all of those of you listening, if you've enjoyed uh, this God Pod, we'll be back again with another before too long. So, a uh, big thank you to Jane. My pleasure. And to Nick. Thank you. And uh, we'll. was GodPod, a podcast from St Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try.